0: Thanks for tuning in to the Midweek Devotional from First Presbyterian Church for Wednesday, July the 15th. It's amazing, we're halfway through July already. School will be upon us soon, whatever it looks like. Uh, My name is Parker Johnson. You can find out more about our church at fpcbruton.org. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in our time together, you would grow us spiritually, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I've been doing my own personal devotion from the book of Acts. Uh, it is likely, I'm not. this is not a, a, a guarantee, but it is likely we're heading there next as a church after we finish the Sermon on the Mount. And I reached this morning the conversion of Saul in Acts chapter 9, and I just wanted to bring out a few points. If you've read the book of Acts, <clears throat> you, you know excuse me, that Paul plays an integral part, especially in the second half of the book. You see the first half of the book, you see uh, the church growing, you have Pentecost, you have the beginning of persecution and the dispersion of the Jews uh, throughout uh, Judea and Samaria and to areas beyond. And when they go, when they disperse, they are taking the word of God with them. And because of that, the Great Commission begins to be fulfilled. Um, Well, at the end of chapter 7, there's a real shift. Uh, 7 is the martyrdom of the first Christian Uh, witness or martyr, and that is of Stephen. And when they go to stone Stephen for his belief in Christ, we read in Acts chapter 7, um, verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Well, Saul, whose name is also Paul, it doesn't turn into Paul, by the way. It, his he has both a Jewish name and a Greek name. We know that because the Holy Spirit is going to refer to him as Paul, or excuse me, as Saul, over in Acts chapter thirteen. This was after his conversion, and so Paul is going to spend most of his time ministering to Gentiles, Greek speakers, and so he will be using the Greek version of his name. Uh, but that's an aside. So, in chapter 7 and 8, we are introduced to this man named Saul. Now, we find out from the rest of scripture that Saul, or Paul, uh, was a very zealous man. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Jew of Jews. He was very zealous for the law. He was very zealous for earning his way of, to salvation by his good works. Um, and he was a really well educated man. In fact, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I've always struggled with how to pronounce his name, and I, and I hope that's correct. Now, Gamaliel is an interesting man because he, he is also a man who, um, who showed some restraint when it came to persecuting uh, Christians when the Jews had imprisoned the, um, the disciples Uh, Gamaliel actually spoke up for them. Um, Over in Acts chapter 5, verse 34, we read, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. Um, Skip down, skip down. Uh, He says... Verse thirty-eight. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But is it of God? If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so they ended up taking his advice and they beat the apostles and then released them. Well, at this point, as one commentator points out, uh, Hendrickson he points out that 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 Saul or our Paul is going to. Split ways with Gamaliel. Gamaliel saying, "Hey, don't, don't go and persecute these guys. Let them go." But Paul is a very zealous man. He parts ways with his mentor because we find in Acts chapter eight. Uh, Beginning in verse 1, and so Paul approved, or Saul approved of his execution, Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against all the church in Jerusalem. They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul is not someone who is content just to speak against Christians in the Sanhedrin, the governing council of the Jews. He's not a man to be opposed to them just in theory. Here is a man who is so filled with hatred of God's people, of the disciples, those who are following the way, as it was called at that time, that he is committed personally to go and to persecute Christians. And he's gonna drag folks out of their houses, not just men, but also women, and committed them to prison. Apparently the Romans were okay with this, having given them a measure of freedom in terms of imprisoning folks who were speaking ill of Judaism. Well, Saul's reputation is going to precede himself. It becomes known within the Christian community uh, throughout the region that Saul is someone who is dead set on taking them out. But, you know, isn't it just like God to use someone like Saul? Someone who was so opposed to him, then to use him for his glory and to use him as perhaps the greatest evangelist, of course, apart from Christ, the world has ever known. Well, Saul is not content just to stick around in uh, the area of Jerusalem. As we get over to Acts chapter 9, in which we read the conversion of Paul, uh, we're going to read that just, just why Paul is on the way to the city of Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, we read this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, let's point out a few things here. First, uh, Luke, who's the author of Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that he is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, we don't have anywhere in Scripture that says that Paul actually killed anybody, although later in one of his testimonies, he's going to say that he approved of the execution of Christians, and it's a plural sense, so there seems to be more than one. Uh, and he certainly was standing there when they, um, uh, when they stoned S- uh, Stephen, and he certainly approved of that. We don't have any direct evidence that he himself killed them. It seems here that he is content just to drag them, bound, basically gagged, uh, to Jerusalem where they will stand trial and be thrown into prison. Uh, but he is breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Notice that here Christians are called disciples. Uh, You know, a disciple is someone not just a convert, and I think that's important for us to remember that we are called not just to be converts, converted to Christianity and saved, but but be disciples, that we are to follow Christ, that we are called to be lifelong learners. I think MacArthur, I think that's MacArthur's definition of a disciple. We are called to be lifelong learners as we follow the Lord, and so here were these lifelong learners who who hadn't been Christians very long because this, this is early on in church history and who were seeking to do life and learn about the Lord and following him. They belong to the way they belong to the way that was an early way of referring to um, to being a follower of Christ. Now he goes to Damascus for a reason here I'm depending on Hendrickson 's commentary. Uh, where he says that the road, the footpath journey for Paul would have been five or six days. It would have been about 150 miles to get to Damascus. And the reason he went to Damascus is because it was a commercial center uh, where caravans, and I'm reading directly from the commentary here, where caravans converged from all directions in the ancient world and where the Christian faith began to flourish. Paul realized that from Damascus, the gospel of Christ would spread throughout the world end quote. It was a place where people came and uh, rubbed shoulders with folks from different backgrounds from all over the world. It's just like today that people become believers as they interact with other believers, and cities are a great place to uh, target for missions and ministries, including our fair city of Bruton. Just because we're a small city doesn't mean that we're not an important city when it comes to the spread of the gospel. And so he felt if we're going to contain this heresy called Christianity or the way, if we're going to stop these disciples, then we need to go there because it is from Damascus that the gospel is going out throughout all the Greek-speaking world amongst or along the great Roman roads. The Romans had built just phenomenal roads uh, for their military, but it also encouraged trade and communication. Well, it was a bigger city, right? In fact, it says that He asks from the chief priest or the high priest letters to the synagogues, plural. Now, remember, a synagogue is a place of worship where people would gather if they didn't live in Jerusalem for worship. They couldn't just go down to Jerusalem every Sabbath day, every Saturday for worship, and so they would gather in local churches. Uh, and actually, we get a lot of how we operate from how they operated. They had elders, and they had a proto-deacon office. They, they didn't call them deacons, but they had assistants uh, who would help with the running of the place. Now, uh, he goes to the high priest. The high priest here is Caiaphas. Caiaphas. We also know that caiaphas 's son in law Annas uh, also exercised the authority of the high priest as well, and we see that from verse fourteen, uh, where Ananias is going to refer to the plural of chief priests now here 's what really struck me this morning in my study, my own devotion there 's so much meat here, so much meat, but two things one. We have an order from the chief priest, the high priest, who, um, to go and persecute Christians. Now, this high priest had given Paul a mission, and it was against, you ready for this? Another high priest. So in Jerusalem, or in, the, in, the, in this era, the greatest religious authority came from the high priest. He basically ran the show. He and the Sanhedrin, and a letter from him was a letter that carried a lot of authority. But there is one who has greater authority, and it is Christ, whom the author to the Hebrews, over in Hebrews chapter four, verse fourteen, says this: "Since we have a ready for this, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God." Let us hold fast our confession. So the high priest uh, Caiaphas would have entered once a year into the Holy of Holies only on the Day of Atonement. And yet he is opposed to the true high priest of Christ, who has entered not into the pattern of the heavenly things, the pattern of the true temple. But our Christ, our high priest, who has actually entered the real Holy of Holies, the very throne room of our God, he has taken his sacrifice there and made atonement for us. Caiaphas is opposed to the true high priest. And so the authority of the greater high priest is, of course, far greater than that of an earthly high priest who is no longer serving God but indeed conspired with others to kill the author of life, to crucify the true high priest. Well, the second thing I just wanted to draw out is when Saul is converted, we see our true high priest, our Savior, identifying himself with his people. I I remember hearing this preached a long time ago, and it, it has always stuck with me. So we pick up in Acts chapter 9, verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. You know, it's interesting. Jesus says, Why are you persecuting me? Have you ever thought about why he says that? You know, Jesus is in heaven. Jesus can't be touched by Saul's persecution. Jesus can't be taken to jail. That had already happened. And he he died, and then he'd been raised from the dead on the third day. The bonds, neither the Romans, the Jews, or even death itself. They they could not hold our true high priest. So why in the world did he say this? Why are you persecuting me? Well, He says that because Jesus so closely identifies himself with his people that to persecute his people, to hurt his people, is to persecute our true high priest, our king, and our God. You know, if we are Christians, we have been united to Christ, we are one in him. We are seated in the heavenly places according to Ephesians chapter 2 already. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God and Christ for us, according to Romans chapter 8. We are hid in Christ. We are secure in Christ. We've been buried with Him and raised with Him. And so there's nothing that can separate us from Him. And so to persecute Christians is to persecute Jesus. That's how closely He identifies Himself with His people. Are you one of His people? What are you going through these days? We're blessed in our culture, at least at this point, that we don't have um, perhaps institutional persecution. But that may come. We'll see. Certainly some of the Supreme Court cases have been troubling as of late. Uh, But there are other persecutions, right? Uh, Social, cultural. The world says this and the Bible says the other. But it doesn't have to be persecution. It can be whatever you're going through. Illness, depression, anxiety, financial hardship. The fact is that Jesus very closely identifies himself with his people. And indeed, he, he did so much. He identified himself so close with his people that, that he became our sin on the cross. He took our sin upon him. Second Corinthians 5.21 um, says, for, for our sake, he made him who, who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became the, the very um, sacrifice of our sin. He took that upon himself, and so he is very identified with us. It's like a child who says, do you love me? You don't even love me. Now, I'm sure there are some parents who don't love their children, but, but uh, that's, I know that doesn't refer to you. Uh, and you think, Really? Uh, What have I done? I've sacrificed. I have worked hard. I've uh, put aside my agenda. I've done X, Y, and Z to raise you, to be with you, to lead you, to guide you, to parent you. And you ask me, do I I love you? I'm so identified with you. I'm your your father. I'm your mother. How much more so our Savior? We know how to, we who are evil know how to give good gifts. How much more so does our Father in Heaven know how to give us good gifts? Um, So there you go uh there's there 's so much more meat on this bone uh, so much more we could say about how Christ is going to use this vile righteous center known as Saul to bring the gospel to the really the whole known world at this point. We could certainly apply that to ourselves if Jesus could use Paul, he certainly can use us um there's so much more we could say, but perhaps today is just enough to be reminded that. Jesus is our high priest. He has paid the sacrifice for your sin and my sin, the once-for-all sacrifice, and we merely have to accept it. And, And he so identifies himself with his people, with you and me, that knowing that can bring us comfort today. Let's pray. So, Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for using someone like Paul. Use us, Lord, that you might use us to... Uh, spread the gospel um, here in Bruton, East Britain, surrounding areas, uh, that many more men and women, boys and girls, might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We pray these things in the name of our high priest, our Savior Jesus. Amen.